Our reading this morning is from Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. Romans 3, 21 to 26. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, they are, it's on page 1130. If you'd like to find it there, but it'll also be on the screen. Let's read together. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ethan. So we continue through our series on Romans um, with this passage from chapter 3. Apparently, one of the big cinema events of the last year, which I have to say passed me by completely as cinema events do tend to, if I'm honest, um, was the re-release of James Cameron's film Titanic for Valentine's Day. Um, it was his 25th anniversary and it was um, redone. You'd say remastered if it was an album, but I don't know what you do to films. Anyway, it was redone somehow. Um, and. Uh, uh, now, you may, if you don't know the film, you might think that uh, the most famous shipwreck in history is, a, is an odd choice for Valentine's Day, but there was a reason, um, as all films about the Titanic, and there have been many, uh, have to. Um, Cameron had to find some way of filling the hour before the boat sinks. Um, and uh, um, he, he chose to do it with a love story, a teenage love story. Jack, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who back then was young and good-looking, um, and Rose, played by Kate Winslet. As the ship sinks, Jack dies, saving Rose. And in the film, the story is framed by Gloria Stewart playing a present-day Rose, now 100 years old, remembering what happened and retelling it for the first time in her life. In one of the most famous lines in the film, she says, I've never spoken of him until now. But now you know there was a man named Jack Dawson and that he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. Now, 25 years ago, that line was an absolute gift for preachers, which many of us grabbed greedily and reused shamelessly. Um, <laughs> I had it as the uh, title of one of my lectures on the theology of salvation for years. I think I, I finally took it down when uh, I realized that that year's freshers had been born when the film was released. Um, <laughs> but it's back out. <laughs> and so relevant again. <laughs> 
and when it comes to good lines for preaching, I have absolutely no shame. Um, and besides, in keeping with our theme this morning, um, we preachers have to recycle stuff. It's the only way we'll ever save the world. <laughs> he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. Our title is Good News, the heart of it, and this just about sums it up. There are big words in the passage that Ethan read to us, righteousness, justification, redemption, atonement. We'll come to them and what they mean. But it all boils down to something very, very simple. Now you know that there was and is a man named Jesus Christ, and he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. And he saved you in every way that a person can be saved. And he saved all, all in verse 24, in every way that a person can be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Believe and trust in him. As we've heard from Abby and Crystal last week, Paul has been arguing that neither simply being Jewish or, or keeping the law that God gave to the Jews through Moses um, brings righteousness. Last week, Krista took us to the climax in, of that argument in this list of verses from the Psalms, beginning, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. And then, as she pointed out, our passage begins, but, as a famous Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the, the great Welsh preacher of the middle of the last century, uh, uh, preaching on this passage, um, who goes on about uh, how, just how glorious, just how wonderful a buck can be. And uh, I thought of this and then thought, having just talked about Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, <laughs> perhaps that could be misunderstood. So, um, um, but the reversal here is wonderful and glorious and summed up in verses 23 and 24. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The two long chapters have proved the negative. The first point, that no one is righteous, not by privilege of birth, not by keeping the law, now, Paul tells us, that God has acted in Jesus Christ to make a way, a way available to us all. Only believe, believe in Jesus. And here's our first big word, righteousness. Apart from the law, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been made known. And if you've not grown up or, or been often in church, righteousness is probably not a word you use a lot. And so you may not know what it means. If you have grown up and been in church, then um, righteousness might be a word that you say or sing very easily, but you still don't really know what it means. The only ways we, we do use the word outside of churches these days are negative. We talk about people wrongly convinced of their own virtue as self-righteous. Paul certainly doesn't want us to be wrongly convinced of our own virtue. That's been the whole point of the argument up to now. Um, think about putting something right or better 
something being put right because verse 22 tells us that righteousness isn't something we do, it's a gift given to all who believe. Back in the lines from the Psalms in verses 10 through 18, there's no one who is righteous, is followed immediately, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, and a long list of what unrighteousness looks like. To be righteous is to understand, to seek God, to be in the right place before God, to live rightly before God, to have a right relationship with God. God created us, and so being right with God is the most important, the most vital thing that we can be. It's what we were made for. Just being born into the Jewish people didn't make anyone right before God. Living according to the Jewish law or trying to do that didn't make anyone righteous before God. That's been chapter two, most, the first half of chapter three. Righteousness is a gift, a gift from God, given through Jesus. Now, if you were following the reading in the Pew Bibles, you might have noticed a, a footnote. Um, I'm an academic, we do footnotes. Um, um, with an alternative translation in verse 24, instead of given through faith in Christ Jesus, it might be given through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. The Greek is just ambiguous, it could mean either. Um, I have friends who get extraordinarily excited about which of these translations is better. I have to confess I don't. Um, um, and I tend to think that ambiguities like this are, are generally intended and invite us to assume that both meanings are true. And easy, that's easy here. Righteousness is given to us because we have faith in Jesus Christ and because Jesus Christ was faithful in his earthly ministry. And then the big words start coming fast. Verse 24 has justified and redemption. Verse 25, sacrifice of atonement. Good churchy words that probably mean nothing to some of us and that others of us are so used to hearing and singing that we forget to think about what they mean. But here we really see the truth that he saved us in every way that a person can be saved. Justification, it's a legal word. It comes to the law courts. It means being declared innocent, Whatever we've done, whatever was on the charge sheet, all wiped clean by what God has done in Jesus. Redemption is a word that comes from the slave market, not something we know about, but of course a daily reality in Rome. Indeed, many of the Roman Christians who gathered to hear Phoebe read and explain Paul's letter would have been slaves. Every slave had a price. If they or their family or some rich benefactor paid the price, they could be bought out of slavery and set free. Jesus pays the price, sets us free from whatever slavery we are struggling under. And sacrifice, again, you'll see from the footnote in the Pew Bibles, sacrifice here is taking us back to the Ark of the Covenant and the holiest place of the temple. How are we declared innocent of all faults? How is the price to set us free paid? by Jesus, God the Son, who came in solidarity with us, born as one of us, who as priest and victim offered himself on the cross, a sacrifice that saves us in every way a person can be saved. A price must be paid to free a slave. A sentence must be served if the criminal is guilty. In dying to save us, in offering himself as sacrifice, 
Jesus pays the price, serves the sentence. So now all are justified freely, redeemed, made righteous through the shedding of his blood. Saved from the law, saved from the slave market, saved by sacrifice. He saved me in every way a person can be saved. Paul's reaching around for for pictures, images, illustrations, metaphors that would make sense to his readers in Rome 2,000 years ago. The law court, the slave market, the temple sacrifice, daily normal realities for those who first heard Phoebe read this letter. We know about law courts, although ours are a bit different to the old Roman ones, I guess. Slave markets remain tragically a reality across the world, but uh, for a horrific number of people. But thankfully, I guess it's not something that most of us have any experience of. Sacrifices, again, are probably a foreign idea to us. They were so common in Rome that temples set up restaurants round the back to sell off all the leftover meat. But I guess that none of us here have uh, ever seen an animal richly sacrificed. So down through the history of the church, people have looked around for images that would work for them to illustrate what God has done in Jesus. Paul offers us here legal, economic, religious images. Later writers have medical and metaphysical and sociological and political and military images and some others that got a little weird. Um, which I enjoy talking about when I'm lecturing on salvation, but we'll leave here. Um, (laughs) None of them are perfect. But in all sorts of different ways, we try to picture something of what God has done for us in Jesus. He saved us in every way a person can be saved. Given the theme of our harvest service, I wonder whether we might look for an environmental image in our own day. We all know, after all, that the real and present danger to the continuation on life as Earth as we know it is global warming. Tear Fund asked us to focus on pollution, rubbish, this harvest, on the damage that single-use plastics, disposable materials are doing to our world. Perhaps finding a way to talk about how Jesus saves us in these terms will be illuminating for us the way the slave market was for Paul. According to the Old Testament scriptures, sin is something invidious and ubiquitous. Unseen, it seeps into every place, a foul miasma that pollutes and damages everything. Sometimes obvious and obscene, sometimes unseen, but corrupting. Plastic pollution in our world today might not be a a bad image for this. On the one hand, there are obvious and obscene results of pollution. The rubbish piles around cities in the majority world. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch that stretches from Japan to California and is a massive concentration of plastic pollution pushed together by tidal systems. 
On the other hand, microplastics, tiny, tiny fragments uh, as plastic wears down but doesn't, um, doesn't, doesn't disappear. Microplastics get everywhere into every food system there is, so into animals, bottled water sold on the basis of its purity is pretty much always contaminated with microplastics now. There's virtually nowhere on Earth, certainly no biological system, that's free of these pollutants, sometimes obvious and obscene, sometimes unseen but corrupting, a foul miasma that pollutes and damages everything. Maybe a good image for sin in the biblical picture. What images of salvation might we find? I think we have to be careful here. We all know, I guess, the, that self-righteousness has been alive and well amongst those who are just a bit greener than we are. <laughs> Some folks are far too ready to pass judgment on others for not being quite environmentally conscious enough. But self-righteousness always brings despair, as, as Krista pointed out so powerfully last week. And this is a significant problem right now. If we believe that we, it's down to us to save the world, we will become crushed and hopeless when we see that we are failing. Chris Sutherland was someone I, I worked with on a couple of projects some years ago. Um, we became friends. He is a priest in the Church of England, but um, years ago he gave up his parish ministry to give himself full time to environmental activism. Um, he was well into it, camping out with the protesters on the site of the third runway at Heathrow and so on. Um, I once asked him what did he bring as a Christian minister to those sorts of places, and his reply was immediate and heartfelt and just one word, hope. He explained that most people who were deep in the green movement, in the protest camps and so on, were despairing. Target after target had been missed. Predictions were dire on every level. If we believe that our human action is the only thing that can save the world, it's easy to conclude that the world is lost. Chris believes in Jesus. Chris believes that God has acted in Jesus to save the world, to save each one of us, to save us in every way that a person can be saved. Chris has hope because Chris knows that God will not let us reap the reward of our sin. Of course, as Paul has argued, our convictions and actions are not irrelevant. God does call us to do good. And although we will never be saved by the good that we do, we do good because we have been saved through Jesus. Caring for creation, as we've been thinking about this morning, is a part of the good we can do. Commanded at the beginning when Adam and Eve were instructed to tend the garden, to tame the wilderness and make the garden bigger. We might talk about recycling as an image of salvation, broken and failing as we are. God does not toss us aside on a rubbish heap, but calls us to be remade, repurposed, recycled. God gives us hope 
and a future when we can see neither. In Jesus, by the Spirit, God renews and remakes us. God recycles us so that we can be of use in his kingdom. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice and our sins are forgiven. We are set free. Our lives are recycled and given new meaning and purpose. He saved us in every way that a person can be saved. And so says Paul, believe, believe. This righteousness is given through faith to all who believe. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to be received by faith. He did it so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God has saved you. God has saved you in every way that a person can be saved. Do you believe that? Are you prepared to trust your life to that? To build your life on that truth. Then there is freedom from the law court, from the slave market, from the rubbish tip, from everything else that damages or hurts or enslaves us. Because there is a man named Jesus Christ. And he has saved us in every way that a person can be saved.